Today, as we uh, finish up uh, class 12 of Living as a Church, we're going to look at the topic of evangelism. Actually see how evangelism is a harvest of unity. Uh, Christians, you know, we often see personal evangelism as either the job of the church, i.e. maybe the paid professionals, uh, or sometimes we just see that as 100% our own job. So on the one hand, uh, we think of evangelism as getting people to come to church. And then we structure, uh, perhaps structure church around the needs or interests of non-Christians. You might hear the term used around church of, oh, that church is seeker-sensitive, to where they're uh, being extremely sensitive to those who are, are not believers yet. Or on the other hand, we might think of church as nothing to do with evangelism and swinging too far the other way, uh, in the other direction. So evangelism and evangelism training become the responsibility of parachurch organizations that maybe seek to equip and fill that role that they don't see a church uh, meeting. So there's a problem with the first model, that church is not, in essence, about outreach. It's about a community of Christians uh, designed to model the character of God to a watching world. So if we turn Sunday mornings into a maybe a lecture series, uh, we wind up falling short and failing to grow uh, a church of fully devoted followers, and it stifles our evangelism. But the second model is really no better. When we swing too far the other way, while parachurch ministries are great and are helpful and can be used as a tool, the church is one of God's primary tools for evangelism. So what does scripture say when we look at evangelism? Well, uh, Peter's description of the church in 1 Peter 2.9, he describes the people of God as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, holy nation. And so what is the purpose of God's people? Well, the reason that we are a chosen generation and a royal priesthood is that we, God has conferred on us a heavenly citizenship. And this is according to Peter in the second, ver, second part of verse 9 in chapter 2. He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. So we have received our citizenship for the purpose of proclaiming the good news of Christ. We're proclaiming uh, God's praises. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, what, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, uh, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. In verse 20, it says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Jesus says this in, in John 13. He says, 
A new commandment I give you, to love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So Jesus gives his disciples this command in verse 34. He says to, what? To love one another. So this is a love among Christians and, a com- and is a command uh, that follows the res- by this result. So the way that we love one another speaks powerfully to those who are not Christians. So when we love one another, it's a powerful witness to the world. We actually looked at this uh, in week six as we looked at church fellowship and asked the question of why is love important? Well, uh, one of the ways we saw is that God glorified, God is glorified when we love across social boundaries. So when people who have little or nothing in common except for Christ uh, love one another, this is a powerful example to the world around us. I think this is why Paul in Ephesians 3 gets so excited when the Jews and the Gentiles that were previously at odds with, with each other that are clashing um, are now one united in the family of God. So this glorifies God. And, and I think Peter saw this unity in action. We see in Acts 2, he says, it's, And all who believed were together and had what all things in common. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So these early Christians had a life together. Uh, and that life together became a display of love. Uh, and God used that to witness uh, to people and to draw people to himself when they saw that love for one another. So as Christians, we are called to live together in such a way that when the world will see the power of the gospel at work in our lives as we live together with one another. Christians, uh, this is not something we do as individuals, but God's people are bound together in churches. And this is one of the clearest pictures that the world sees of who God is. Uh, there's a guy in uh, 160 A.D. His name was Tertullian. He was a church, early church scholar uh, from North African who lived, um, like I said, around 160. And he said uh, this, he, as he wrote this apology, uh, this famous work called Apology to Roman Magistrates as he defended slanderous charges against Christians. He said, we are one body knit together as such by a common religious profession, by unity of discipline, and by the bond of common hope. And then he noted the impact that love had on the unbelievers around them. He said this, but it is mainly the deeds of love so noble that they may lead many to put a brand on us so they see how we love one another. So a conspicuous congregational love in a loveless world will not be ignored. So when people see the work of love 
in the congregation, in the context of a congregational love, it will not be ignored. By Christians living out the gospel in a distinct community, the church accomplishes the important mission of displaying the transforming work of God in their lives. And this is so the world would see and know. Uh, and that's our topic for today, a display of God's goodness through corporate witness. And this morning we will uh, continue by looking at three things. We'll see that the unique power of this congregational, uh, congregational witness. Then we'll consider how we can apply that to our life as a church. And then finally, we'll end our time with some thoughts on our life together. <clears throat> so, how can our life together empower evangelism? Well, we saw from those passages just a few moments ago that our unity and love provides an outward witness to God's power through the gospel. But practically, what does that look like? and How does that happen? Well, a congregational witness enables unbelievers to see evidence of God's power that they can see in our lives as individuals. Uh, one passage I think we can think of is John 17. Uh, would someone be willing to read that for me this morning? John 17, 20 through 23. Yep. Thank you. So our unity in the gospel, it testifies to Christ and his love for his people. So the reason that Jesus prayed that the disciples would be in the Father and the Son was so that, that the world, at the end of that passage, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me them as you have loved me. So their relationship with the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit would give credibility to their message about Jesus and lead many non-believers to believe in Him. So the impact of your relationship with others in the church extends far beyond um, those small circles that you might have of Christian fellowship or the church. In fact, it can be the impact of Christ and the, the reputation throughout the city as a church might have. So the light of the world, is a, it's a city on a hill, is what we read in Scripture. But then second, related to this idea of unity, is the power of a congregational witness through Christian love. And this love is something we've talked a lot about over the last 12 weeks. What marks a Christian in the eyes of the world? Well, more than doctrine, more than passionate worship, is our love for one another. So love is an important mark of our witness for Christ. 
So our love for one another is one way that we make this invisible kingdom visible. Uh, John Stott says it this way, and it's kind of a lengthy comment or quote from what he says, but I'm going to read it for us this morning. Uh, he says, the, invi- in- excuse me, the invisibility of God is a great problem. It was already a problem to God's people in the Old Testament days. Their pagan neighbors would taunt them saying, where is your God now? Their gods were visible and tangible, but Israel's was neither. Today our, sacri- uh, our scientific culture of people are taught not to believe in anything which is not open to investigation. How then has God solved this problem of his own invisibility? The first answer, of course, is what? In Christ. Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. We see this in John 1.8. No one has ever seen God, but God is the only Son, but God, the only Son, has made him known. So that's wonderful, people say, but that was over 2,000 years ago. Is there now no way in which the invisible God makes himself visible today? Well, there is. We can return to 1 John 4.12, where it says, No one has ever seen God. It is precisely the same introductory statement. But instead of continuing with reference to the Son of God, it continues by saying, If we love one another, God dwells in us. So in other words, the invisible God, who once made himself visible in Christ, now makes himself visible in Christians. So if we love one another, it is a breathtaking claim. The local church cannot evangelize proclaiming the gospel of love if it is not itself a community of love. So we are a community of love, and we're motivated by God's grace. And we are called to display this love in the midst of a fallen world that is full of pain and hatred. So how does God manifest this in our lives? Well, love is often manifested itself in good deeds. We see this in Matthew 5.16. Uh, would someone be willing to read that for me this morning? It is not in your handout, but good news, it is in Matthew 5.16. Hmm. Yes. So Jesus is speaking to the effect of the life the disciples can have on those around him. The life of the disciple is not merely fulfilled in private holiness, but includes living the life of holiness in public witness. So this phrase that we see in good works um, conveys the qualities that Jesus sets forth in the Beatitudes, especially the righteousness of life, which will be characterized, uh, characteristic of a disciple. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 5, uh, this message that he gave is echoed in uh, Peter, in 1 Peter 2.12. Uh, 
where he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So according to Jesus, the good deeds of his disciples um, are the windows through which the community, which the world, comes to see and glorify God. So what does that look like for us today? Well, here's where these passages are a little bit different than our, maybe our natural inclination. Uh, the witness Jesus had in mind isn't our love for the world, but it's the love for the church. So if we love one another well, if we love each other well, the world will see that love. That's profoundly compelling. So we, should, we, should we love the world? Well, yes, we should. Scripture is clear when it says that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. But it's love for each other that Jesus says will mark us out in this world. So our good deeds towards outsiders and our love for your fellow church members points our friends and neighbors to Christ. Another great advantage of evangelism in the context of the congregation is that we help each other witness. Um, this is a, in the book Compelling Community. The author says that when we fail to involve the church, he likens it to digging a pit with a toy shovel and then leaning on a backhoe to rest. And that picture can be helpful because if we're not using the church, uh, one of the greatest tools in evangelism, then we're not, we're not using all the tools that God has given us. So our evangelism as a body of believers is more powerful because many members with different gifts and different opportunities to use those gifts and to involve others in witnessing to unbelievers. So one example is when we share um, evangelism, you know, on Sunday night, we maybe share opportunities that we've had. Uh, what do we do? We seek to pray, encourage those others that are, that are leading and trying to uh, evangelize to a lost friend. Uh, we're seeking opportunities. And we're sharing with the body so that they can be in prayer and be intentional with us. So when you talk to folks who have become Christians through the ministry of the church, you often find that it wasn't just in isolation that that happened, but it happened with many other believers. You can maybe call that group evangelism. So one example I see in 1 Corinthians 3, when uh, Paul said, it, Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And so God is the one that is causing the growth. Ultimately, God is the one who provides that growth, but the workers in his field are seeking to be faithful at every opportunity that God provides. And fourth, God is uh, uniquely glorified when we bear witness to him together. As an assembly of believers, we can give glory to God with greater volume and variety as maybe an individual can. Uh, again, in the book, Compelling Community, uh, Jamie Dunlop calls this mob evangelism. Uh, when you see evangelism as more as just inviting your friends to church, mob evangelism uh, shares the good news through relationships. 
evangelism is something that you do day to day, not just something that happens once a week. It's a way that we live life. By way of example, uh, let's say you're with a group of Christian friends and there are a few non-believers in that group with you. Maybe an opportunity arises to share about what God is doing in your life and how he is growing you. Maybe one person talks about how God used a difficult time in their life. Maybe another talks about uh, being raised in a Christian home. Um, I think God is glorified in these opportunities of congregational witness when he is using the body to speak to someone who does not believe in him. And it presents a non-Christian with a much richer picture of how God works in this world rather than simply talking to one person alone, which he can certainly do and has. But I think there's something unique about using the gifts and the talents and the whole body uh, as we seek to evangelize those who do not know Christ. The last way we're involved in corporate evangelism is by church planting and church planting here in locally and church planting around the world. So you may not know, but here at UBC, there's a group of members that are currently meeting, uh, preparing to plant a church in Benton County. Why? Well, because church planting is one of the most effective long-term strategies for evangelism. I think that the Lord has given his church. So being a part of a church planting, whether you are sending or going, um, can impact an area for years to come. So planting um, a new church, uh, said by Tim Keller, who authored this book called Why Plant Churches, uh, he made this bold statement saying, planting of new congregations is one of the most single effective strategies for evangelism in North America. And it can have impact for years to come. So as you mobilize a group of people in an area that maybe will reach beyond your church walls, will be able to plant and to mobilize folks that they would live a life and evangelize to their neighbors and seek to see people come to know Christ. So in our church, we can pull wisdom, experience, financial support, prayers, callings, and direct those resources to making God's name great among areas that maybe reach to the edge of where um, our church can reach. And as a church, we do this by making disciples and by sending pastors and training pastors uh, along with members and funding to plant new churches. And so that is one way that we can work together through the church for missions and evangelism. Any questions or comments so far? Well, there are all sorts of ways that our witness is amplified as a congregation. So how do we do that? How do we become good stewards of the wonderful blessing of unity and love that God has given us in the church to reach others with the gospel? 
Well, first, for our love and unity to be visible and real to non-Christians, we need to expose them to the life of the church. So the most natural place to begin is our regular assemblies together as a body uh, that maybe non-Christians may be attending or um, being a part of. So here are some questions for us to think about in our regular meetings together. First is, what might non-Christians see on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening? Do they see Christians that have an evident love for one another? Do they see church members who are quick to greet them and express interest in who they are? Do they see members inviting them to lunch after the service where they can get to know uh, different people without, throughout the body? And there's always ways to grow. So as we consider in ways which we display our love and unity to be visible and real to non-Christians, uh, what are ways that you seek to live out and love, uh, live out your love and unity to be visible to non-Christians? So what are ways that you uh, live out love and unity to be visible to non-Christians? specifically through the church, but personally, you can share that as well. Yeah. 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 Taking the time to greet them, to let them know that it's good to see them, and to, you know, to, to share your gratitude that they're they're there and a part of the. And it's been harder, you know, since we've had COVID, we can't turn and greet and, you know, yeah. I mean, all of that has been kind of restricted. Yes. Yeah. And so you kind of have to find other ways because, you know, if if COVID has gotten in the way through some of those things. Uh, to to greet one another, then you you have to be kind of creative in finding ways to do that. Yeah. Well, you you know, I think to your point, one of the ways that we can do is uh, make the point to connect with people maybe you don't know. If you don't see, if you see a face that maybe is not familiar, you know, you show hospitality, inviting others to be a part of. Maybe someone's new and you can invite them to lunch after the service with a group of uh, folks from the church. Uh, you can be strategic throughout your Bible studies or uh, maybe Sundays that we have baptism to where people can come and see. Um, we can be a part of inviting friends to weddings so they, they can see that ceremony uh, that is hopefully gospel-centered. Um, and invite, him in, invite non-believers into uh, areas and ways that the congregation is doing life together uh, every day. So, but I don't think you can stop there. I think it, 
should continue on. So say you invite somebody to church on Sunday. Well, I think follow-up lunch would be helpful, and you could ask, hey, what did you think? And um, just pursue those conversations of, of asking your friends what they think or maybe answer questions that they might have about the church or why uh, we do what we do. <clears throat> so I think there are ways that we can share about the local church and expose the local church to the world uh, by inviting them in to see uh, those services. <clears throat> then oftentimes, it's not possible to introduce friends or uh, colleagues to the church members or to the our life in the church. And this could be for whatever reason. It could be uh, maybe because of scheduling conflict. It could be that they live out of town. Or maybe they someone just doesn't want to come to church. Uh, so what do we do then? Well, I think people naturally talk about those things that they care about. I know that I do. So as Christians, uh, that means a lot of what we'll talk about is Jesus and the church. So I would encourage you to look for ways to share uh, about maybe your life group or activities or ministries that you're involved in with the church or conversations that you've had amongst other members. Um, maybe you heard a sermon recently that you know, raised a particular issue that you can then share what you learned with a friend or a colleague that's struggling in a certain way. Maybe another example is be as simple as asking your coworker on Monday morning about his weekend, just catching up. And then that's not only a great time to get to know more about them, but also could lead to ongoing gospel conversation. Maybe you can see that as on-ramps to conversation that you might have. One way I try to do this is by sharing life uh, in the church and, and sharing that with extended family. They don't live here in northwest Arkansas. They live in Kentucky. So we may share about what God is doing in our body. It's a way that I can uh, be in, intentional and interact with family, uh, letting them know and give those gospel conversations um, some traction. But then, how, do, how will they respond? Well, Lord willing, they will respond by asking Maybe about your weekend or, weekend, or maybe asking about what you did, or uh, maybe you'll have an opportunity to talk about church in some different ways. So when this happens, we don't want to just say, well, I went to church on Sunday, but we want to be intentional with that. We want to talk about church, what it's like, what we learned, uh, why we care about these people that uh, are in the body with us, and then we can show our love for one another by sharing those stories. But also, life together in the church, as we're reminded in Ephesians 3.10, it says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So as we consider our responsibility in the area, we can take comfort in the knowledge that even the gates of hell will not, will not prevail against the church. Why? It's because the mission is to display before all the heavenly hosts the remarkable wisdom of God. So God in his wisdom has left the task of displaying 
the glory of his perfect character to the church composed of imperfect people. So the question of how that can happen has been the focus of this class. And particularly our goal has been to understand the opportunities and responsibilities that we as church members have to contribute toward that end. So we've seen that our unity together as Christians in the local church acts as a compelling testimony to uh, testimony of the gospel to the watching world. So just as God's manifold wisdom was displayed in the early church through the Gentiles and the Jews living together as members in one body, it's displayed in our church today when people who are different in so many ways unite in one body. And that's what makes such a display of God's glory in our unity, not just uh, a unity in anything, but a unity in the gospel. So this unity is powerful, and it can, have, uh, it can only have come by the hand of God. And this unity is our responsibility as church members. So it's the church together that has been gifted with the, the, the Spirit. And it's the church together who is called to be completely humble and gentle, keeping the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So how do we exercise our responsibility to preserve the unity within church? Well, let me highlight just two points of summary as we begin to close our time together. First, we preserve unity by preserving the gospel message that, that it creates. Well, whether we are in this church or in another church, we should always make sure that the teaching and preaching is true to Scripture. So we can remember in the New Testament, when error slipped into the church's teaching, the apostles, they didn't place the responsibility on the elders they, or the pastors, but they placed the responsibility on the congregation. In First, uh, 2 Timothy 4.3, it says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. I think about Paul's amazement in Galatians 1, where he says, I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel. But even if we are, uh, but even if we or if we or angels from heaven have, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accused. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary than what you have received. What does he say? He says, I'm amazed that you so quickly turn to a different gospel. So he's not talking to pastors, but he's talking to the members of the body. And he tells them to reject even apostles or angels who teach a false gospel. So Christian brothers and sisters, what does this mean? Is that you and I are responsible as members to know the gospel. We are responsible to know the gospels. So just a couple things to check in your own heart is, can you summarize the gospel as you seek 
to share it, can you summarize the gospel in 60 seconds or less? It'd be a good challenge to maybe work with your spouse as you seek to know that well. Can you explain the relationship between faith and works? Or maybe consider what role do good deeds, fellowship, hospitality play in promoting gospel ministry? These are just a few simple questions that members should know in order to answer and to help guard the gospel. But then other, the second, our unity is furthered by sincere love for one another. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things, and it endures all things. So brothers and sisters, love like this. Love those who are different than you. Love through your service. Love through your patience. Love for forbearance. Uh, love through your patience and forbearance and humility. Love by disciplining and teaching one another. Love like this is a great witness to the gospel. So our lives in the church are part of an eternal plan to display His glory, to display God's glory, not just to this world, but all of heaven. Human history began in the garden with a fellowship of a husband and a wife, and it will accumulate one day with this, as we see in Revelation, as a city, a society of light which God Himself is personally present. So today, the local church is a growing picture of that coming reality. It's a city on a hill. And our calling in the nitty-gritty work of crossing society's boundaries is to love one another in this church. And praise God that our future uh, is perfect for eternity with God. So in God's power, let us walk a worthy calling uh, worthy of our calling that we read in Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3, which says, With all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace.